we play for fun. And when you think about play as novelty, if I said to you, Mary, I'm going to strip away all forms of novelty from your life. That mm. sounds horrible. Not only does it sound horrible, this is how this is our this is our highest form of punishment. This yeah. is a prison. Like essentially uh, yes. our our highest form of punishment is actually the elimination of play. We told people, we convinced everybody, everyone, that play was frivolous, that levity was a waste of time, that anything that was human didn't, because it couldn't be quantified, didn't have a business kind of charter, didn't, it didn't belong to business. And that is the greatest lie ever told. Well, there's a bunch of greatest lies ever told, but this is one of them. I think it's one of the, the biggest lies. And it, we've been conditioned, and I think we have a lot of unconditioning to do. And I think every human being knows in their soul it's not true. And it's that awful, awful, you know, Mary, you know this so well. It's like the lack of psychological safety in our companies where people go, I know in my heart that that can't be right because the human soul is wired for joy. So why is it wrong here? It was Einstein's quote, I never try to teach. I only try to create the conditions in which they can learn. I'm, I'm creating a safe container where you can be you. I guess kind of like a conductor, you're calling on the different voices and tunes to inviting them in and giving them permission to, to be themselves. And that creates the symphony. Right? Welcome to the Too Long Didn't Listen edition for the second season of Lead with a Dash of Play. Here, we talk about the how and why of reclaiming playfulness as adults in order to build more connected, innovative, and human-centered workspaces. Isn't that what leadership is all about? I'm your host, Mary Hendra. The beautiful and playful music you hear throughout the season in this podcast comes from Reza Zadie and Joanna Stevens. I thank them, and I thank you, the listeners. You've encouraged me to keep talking with people for this podcast, with your comments and invitations on LinkedIn, your feedback and conversations, and the sharing you've done. When I started this podcast, I was curious to learn from people breaking the perceived binary of work and play. What I discovered that play may be one of the most undervalued leadership skills. And in my second season, I had an amazing array of guests who shared from that intersection of play and leadership. You just heard three, Neil Doshi, Kathy Quotes Guest, and Neville Villamoria. Their quotes highlight the importance of this discussion and perhaps the reason why we need to have this conversation now in the wider context of building inclusion, creating spaces for all people to show up and have their voices valued, challenging burnout. We need play. But we may need a bit of a redefinition. Here's Gary Ware. I've you know, done numerous talks and, and workshops and experiences, you know, all over the world. And when I bring this up, 
most adults, you know, say, oh, it's childish or it's something that kids yeah. do. It's a waste of time or it's goofing off. All of those yeah. can be true, but there's a lot more uh, <laughs> than just those things. Uh, play is a very, you know, sort of wild, like wide spectrum thing. Yeah. And it's challenging to define what it is. But at its core, at its center, it's doing something for the sake of doing it. Um, where the reward is the activity itself. Now, yeah. that can be defined as so many different things. Um, you know, believe it or not, with the right environment, your work can be seen as play. And it's not just someone yeah. that is, you know, you know, maybe engaged in something like dance or something that may seem very joyous. It can be someone that is an engineer or something like that. So the first thing is redefining what play is. Once adults realize mm -hmm. that it's, it's more than just child's play, then we can start to have a conversation about how we can use it to, you know, to better ourselves. Why is play so important to you? Well, it's one of those things that as adults, uh, we take for granted. And it's important for me because I, I know the benefits of it. I, I've experienced the benefits of it. I know what I am like as a person, as a spirit, as a being, when I have it you know and, and i know what it's like when when i'm like deprived from it kids need it uh, adults really need it and you know the last thing i want is you know for us to sort of look back on our lives and you know wish that we would have engaged in more play desire for more play was pretty consistent across all my guests gary and others spoke about their own experiences of burnout but there was a common recognition that play takes intent and explicit planning to be truly effective in professional settings. Sometimes that is the intentional and thoughtfully planned experience outside of work, whether for a short or extended period of time. Travel came up in several episodes this season, and for good reason. Here is Annette Mason. The focus I really saw missing in C-suite leaders consistently, now some people bring it, were communication, connection, and resilience skills. And travel is like a wonderful way to be able to really up-level those skills. But it isn't just outside of work that play makes a difference. Listen to Amy Clymer. I care a lot about creativity and innovation. That's the main thing that I do for work is that I teach yes. organizations and teams how to be innovative and creative. And play is a place where we can experiment and try new things and test things out. And that is critical for creativity and innovation. And I, I think part of play is the unknown. Like, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how right. this is going to work. And being able to get both in that mindset of being open to the unknown, I think is a critical piece of play as well as creativity. Amy grounds leaders in remembering that creativity is a process and guides them in how to set that up for a team. Which just goes to show that Gary is right, that the work environment itself can be a place of play. You heard Neville speak to the metaphor of being a conductor. As a leader, Inviting people in so that each one is heard, and collectively, you're building a beautiful symphony. 
Neil Doshi's research and practice dives even deeper. Part of this challenges what we expect play itself to look like, but there is more. We can actually look at how we structure roles in our organization to facilitate a sense of play. Even the manager's role can be designed this way, with an attention to three levers and some inspiration from the gaming industry. Generally, what someone will say when they say, well, my colleague just doesn't feel play for the work. Well, what do you mean? Well, they don't look like they enjoy it. Yeah. That could explode down a few paths. One is they're not, they're not emoting. Okay. We should talk about whether that's valuable <laughs> or not. Um, you know, so there's that, right? Um, well, there's another thing. They're, well, they're not manifesting the behaviors of play, like experimentation and novelty and ideation yeah. and creativity. That's the more important one. Okay, so they're not yeah. manifesting the behaviors of play. Yeah. Okay, that we should unpack. The best frames I've ever seen on this actually come from the video game industry. Okay. Because the video game industry, their product has to be play. The product is play. If yeah. the product isn't playful, it does not succeed. And the way a great video game designer will think of this is imagine two axes. Imagine the vertical axis is how difficult is the task. Is it, is it challenging? Is it really hard? Is it really easy? Yeah. The horizontal axis is imagine the skill of the player. Are they very, very skilled or are they very unskilled? Mm. Okay. So you have difficulty on one axis, skill on the other. I'll add a third axis in a second, but let's start with those two. Yeah. If you are very skilled and the challenge that you're working on is very easy, the work is boring and you're not right. going to manifest playful behaviors. Let's say the work is very challenging and you're very unskilled. It'll be quite overwhelming and you're not going to be manifesting playful behaviors. Right. So what you generally need to do as a leader is you need to find a way to create challenge that is essentially commensurate with skill. Right. Somebody's skill is relatively low. The challenge has to be has to meet that skill. Right. And this is what a good video game does. Like if you look at a good video game, its difficulty level ramps up with skill of the user. That's a very hard equation. In video games, it's actually very very hard because you don't really have access to the player and your ability to adapt in real time. But if you're leading a team, you do have access do. to the player. Yeah. You can see where they are on that. You can adjust in real time. Yeah. Now, let me add the third dimension that's important. If you have a high motivation team, people will lean into boring work and do it. And people will lean into overwhelming work and do it. So that motivation is really an important construct in this. Yeah. So as a leader, you have three dimensions to play with. Dimension one is I can modulate the difficulty of your work. Dimension two is I can modulate your skill, which is slower. That takes time. Yep. Dimension three is I could expand your motivation. Yeah. So as a leader, what you really need to do is you need to play with those three dimensions, often in real time. Yep. And if, you, if, if I kind of created a game for a leader, the game for a leader, I would say, is these are your three levers. The difficulty of the work, the motivation of the team, the skill of the colleague. Those are your yeah. three levers. The, the scoreboard of this game is that colleague had a useful idea every week. Nice. And here's Gary again on the impact play made for him individually and as a manager. When you discovered improv and you started bringing this back, it seems like you 
have a like an experiment that just naturally happened of what your leadership looked like before integrating play and what it looked like after integrating play. Yes. Can you share more about the difference play made in your leadership and your team? Yeah. And, and it's really interesting because um, I see that after play, uh, you know, it's very clear. It's crystal clear. Uh, but before I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do, you know, so it wasn't like, mm -hmm. I, uh, let me just explain it. So I, I saw the world um, as a proving ground, as in I had to prove um, to myself, to others that I was worthy. Um, yeah. And what that looked like um, in practice was that, um, yes, I worked very hard. Um, and, but like unconsciously, I saw other people as competitors. You know, I thought that was just what we were supposed to do. You know, it was like, yeah. oh, it's a cutthroat world and yada, yada, yada. I would take a vacation. I would come back. And just as quickly as I was gone, I felt like I needed another vacation. I would go to events and it was like a badge of honor. How much were you working? So then, yeah. you know, fast forward, I, you know, discovered play and I felt like I saw the world differently instead of seeing it as a proving ground. Um, I saw it as a playground of possibilities. And so mm. the same world, the same work. Um, you know, instead of seeing people as competitors, I saw them as potential collaborators or playmates. And, yeah. you know, the work was still the same work. It's just that my approach to it was different. Um, you know, I, you know, I took the work yeah. very seriously, but I didn't take myself so seriously. And in some cases, I think I even worked more, but it didn't like in longer hours, but it didn't feel like it because I was doing what was necessary to stay, um, you know, uh, spry, you know, and and I would, yeah, take yeah. breaks when necessary. I didn't, you know, like when you see the world as a proving ground, you don't want, you want to work through lunch because again, you want to be seeing that you're working really hard. But yeah. I realized that, you know what? No, my, my body, you know, needs a break. Um, yeah. You know, what, you know, let's, let's step away from the work. Um, I didn't feel, you know, bad, um, you know, saying, you know what? I, I don't need to, I don't need to work today. I, I've, I've done, I've done enough. You know, I can go do some other things. So again, you know, that was just um, in the book play by Dr. Stuart Brown. He talks about how adults are suffering from play deprivation. And so, yeah. you know, just introducing a playful spirit and, you know, play back into my life. Just I saw the world differently and it yeah. changed how I led <laughs> the people of my team uh, because I brought games and whatnot for meetings. And, and we we worked very hard, um, but we didn't you know take ourselves as seriously. Yeah. I would say playing is the great equalizer and participation is the great equalizer. And humble leaders understand that. And when they enter the space and they see all the strengths of their group, they, first of all, they uncover that a lot of people have talents that you have yet mm -hmm. to tap into. Mm -hmm. That's one thing. A lot of people have talents that you got to dig a little deeper to tap into. And secondly, there are a lot of superpowers and your position is not necessarily a superpower. You are not the head of the team you are a member of the team who has more purview. So that's what comes up for leaders. That was Jay Guilford, whose work with executive leaders includes creating spaces for individual growth, team building, and advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Clearly, significant and long-term impact is possible with the integration of play. Still, that can be a message especially hard to hear for new leaders who are trying so hard to be taken seriously and to show immediate results. Here's Jay again, followed by Jeff Harry. 
what is that balance of the seriousness of being a leader and the playfulness that can bring teams together and bring out your personality? Having led teams and having led leaders of teams, I think seriousness should be X'd from the vocabulary, honestly, because seriousness to me has barred leaders from tapping into their emotional intelligence in order to solve problems that are high stakes. Sometimes when people get into a new leadership role, they are very focused on what the results are, what is being tracked. And with play, there's that feeling of experimentation. There's a little bit of letting go of the results. Mm -hmm. Why and how can people feel more comfortable, even as new leaders, with letting go of the results in order to create a space of play? They have to change their metrics. Like, what are metrics are we measuring right now? Like, what's the important metric right now? Are you still trying to hit your quarterly results? Or do you care right now about the longevity and retaining the employees you have, right? We have to be thinking further ahead than just one quarter or one year ahead. Uh, Adults are so focused on results, but you can't Mm. foster a joyful, innovative, creative work environment when you're so focused on putting these high, hard, difficult, and specific expectations on staff and not getting them the freedom to solve the problems their way. So you have described this playful environment, work environment, in ways that you can fail, that you can experiment, that there is a a degree of agency for employees to be able to do things in their own way, that you create flow, that you have fun. You gave the example of Google's 20% rule. Are there other concrete ways people could look at embedding playfulness in their workplace? Stop taking yourself so seriously. I mean, seriously, come on now, right? Like I say this, <laughs> I say this to people all the time. You, you, you're you already pretending, you know, like yeah. when you go into the workplace, you dress up. So you already have a costume on. So <laughs> why don't you play a role you actually want to play? Just There's got to be a certain level of context of how important your work is in the relation of the rest of your life. And I think the more that we are able to like, see it for what it is like this is work and this is me separate that would tremendously help as well so Mm. that people when they fail at something don't feel as if they're failing in life yeah just because something failed at work that separation between work and identity yeah is really important and this is why people had such an identity crisis during the beginning of the pandemic because they were like challenged on now you can't be productive you're sitting at home who are you when you're not at work? Who are you when you don't, when you don't, when people got laid off? Who are you when you are outside of the workforce, you know? Right. And that's when people started playing more. And I feel as if like play helped people survive the pandemic because they picked up hobbies, right? They started trying all these things, they started baking sourdough bread. And when they weren't doing that, they were binge watching Netflix and Hulu and and heck TikTok. And what are people doing on, on the, all those channels? They're playing. They're yeah. literally creating and playing. So like play basically got us through the pandemic. And I don't think we realized that.
Changing our sense of identity in this way does not always feel easy. Early in this episode, you heard Kathy talk about the conditioning that we have to undo, which has reinforced the notion that play is frivolous and not needed in the workplace. Mike Ganino took us even further back. Play isn't about a guaranteed win every time. It's about learning and testing and playing with your boundaries. The issue with being playful is some protective device, right? Like, I'm not willing to be playful and go there and use all my stuff because I've been told that being this way is the safe way to be. It really is a ramp up. Like, you can't ask someone to do something that risks a lot of status to them right off the bat, Mm -hmm. that risks them looking, and which is really all of these things, but risks them looking bad, silly, stupid, playful, goofy, dumb. And so that's about creating safety to be playful. Yeah. Um, and it's about setting a boundary so they know that they can opt in and out, you know, yeah. all of those things that then allow them to drop the guard they've put up, which is what stops yeah. us from being playful. It's also kind of sad that in our society, our fear of losing status can prevent us from doing the very things that help us build connections, convey a new idea clearly, or innovate and find a new way to be able to do something at all. Yeah. Yeah. And it it starts really young. It starts really young. At a very young age, we trade authenticity for attachment. Mm. You want me to stop crying so I'm a good boy so that you'll love me. We trade expressing ourselves for attachment. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it's just normal. Like, it's not that you had bad parents. It's just normal. Like, my toddler right now is really in this phase of wanting to hit me all the time. Uh, <laughs> playfully hit me, but she wants to be smacking me all the time. Yeah. Um, And I realized that I am buffering her expression, even if it's healthy and normal. Yeah. There's a very thin line there between like teaching her how to be in society and also quieting her impulses, which two-year-olds are full of. They have no control over that. This whole thing about status starts from a young age, really young age for us of like, let me make trade-offs of what I want to express and how I want to be, how I want to carry myself in order to be loved, to be seen as masculine enough if you're a little boy, to be seen as polite enough if you're a little girl, to be seen as this way, this way, this way. And that starts really young. And by the time we get uh, to a certain age and we start listening to your show and someone's on here talking about it, we haven't thought about it in years of like, oh, this isn't just about a meeting where I don't want to look silly. This goes back where I have been filtering myself since I was little. You've lived in, is it five different countries? Yes. How have you noticed uh, the similarities across countries in creativity or innovation or play? And do you see any differences across countries? Hmm. Yes. So I've now lived in Brazil, Israel, Germany, Sri Lanka, Portugal, and traveled quite a lot back and forth to London when I was earning my PhD. I have to say, actually, something that I was really impressed with when I lived in Germany as an American, German people, and this is a a gross generalization, but what I observed is that German people, yes, work really hard, but they also play hard. They know how to step away Mm. from the work and spend time enjoying friends, enjoying family, having picnics, going for walks. And it, and it just really stood out to me because I was like, wow, as in America, we know how to work hard, 
but we're not so good at, at playing <laughs> peace. Right? It's really hard to um, let go, right? To let that go from our mind. Why though? Is it, the, is it the puritanical work ethic that is just like on steroids? What do you think? <laughs> I think that what I've seen in American is that we so often tie our identity to our work. And when I've traveled mm. in other countries, there isn't quite as strong a depth of defining of ourselves by our work. So when we, when I meet people, they talk about the book they're reading or what they did over the weekend or their family. And, and in America, we most often, I think first get to know each other talking about our work. And so our work becomes so tied in with our identity that then it's almost like we're letting go of our identity if we let go of the thoughts we're having around work. I think that's so true. And I, and hearing you say that, I, I guess with the pattern that I would point out between all those very different countries is that identity is, is pretty much, it, it's linked more into our personal orbits. So it might be yeah. more to family first. Yeah. So when I think about Sri Lanka, Portugal and Brazil, where, you know, <laughs> the, the festival of, of, um, of carnival, it can, it can, it, can, it just takes over this, this idea of, yeah. I mean, that's play on steroids. That's yeah. like a national referendum to play, to <laughs> dance, to eat, to yeah. connect with family and old friends, to meet new friends in the street, at least, at least when I lived, I lived in Bahia and Salvador de Bahia, where where Carnival really is a festival mm -hmm. of the streets, the Hua. It's not only floats and stuff that you see like in Hue, Rio. Yeah. So it's it's really, um, I, I think that that is a really great way to, to frame it. Is that where where's our identity stemming from primarily? And in the States, it's, it's, it's work that's really taken over to, to form our identity. Yeah. Mm. That was Natalie Nixon. Restructuring our workplaces, taking time away for intentional designed travel, challenging notions which are embedded in American society. These can seem like a big ask when we're worried about our jobs, recession, or larger societal change. But over and over, my guests provided ways to take small steps. Here are a few. Do you have to get yourself in the right mood to play? Hmm. Not really. I'm always open to it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind taking five minutes off to go do a crossword or like read something online that has nothing to do with my work. I don't mind doing something that takes me away for a few minutes. And for a lot of people that think that that's distraction, but that is also a form of play. You are trying mm -hmm. to inspire yourself by doing a few other things. I, I don't look at it as a distraction. I look at it as fueling my imagination for whatever it is I'm working on. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that drive fear is failure. So what we right. did many, 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 many years ago is we removed the word failure from our normal vocabulary and we replaced it with learning moments. So Ooh. we don't make mistakes. 
we have learning moments. Now, why is that so positive? Well, if you see every interaction as a learning moment, if it's positive, let's share it with people to be able to amplify it. If it's a negative learning moment, let's understand, you know, what did we not achieve and how do we, you know, take that next step in learning. So it's very true that organizations that learn faster grow faster. Do you consider play part of your leadership style? Definitely. As a team, when we play, we we bond more and we get to know each other better. Mm-hmm. And I think that results in a more productive team and relationship and work. It's better for our business and for clients and for everything. So at Clever Carbon, for example, our team meetings, we always started off with a random topic around climate. For example, if I work in the airline industry, would my carbon footprint be different if I was a pilot versus if I was in the accounting department of the airline? So yeah. like the first five minutes, we kind of like talk about that. And it's it's not necessarily play in the sense of, you know, let's do rock, paper, scissors, or like, let's yeah. go outside and skip rope, but it's a different type of let's think together, let's bounce ideas, let's be creative. And there's like no wrong answers. That was Roxana Hussein, Gary Ridge, and Michelle Lee. That sense of play, even for people who know its importance, needs attention and cultivation. Some of my guests always held on to their play. Others shared losing their playful mindset and needing to rediscover it. Wherever you are, you can take inspiration from these leaders. Listen to Van Leidumon, who literally plays with Legos as part of her practice, share what it means to her to hold on to that sense of play and creativity. Do you still maintain a creative practice on the side that is just for you? I do. And that was interesting because I was talking to a business coach about two years ago. I'm like, sometimes I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. I never, I never know exactly what I'm doing. And she said, <laughs> great. Because the work you do is different every time. It's part of your creativity. I'm like, you know, that's yeah. a great perspective. And designing programs for clients, like that is creative. And I love that work. And I found that I wasn't doing anything creative for myself. Um, I like to do acrylic painting. And I always did like larger scale paintings. And I, it's interesting how even like, even though I do this work in creativity, I couldn't see for myself that I was stuck in this idea like, well, I can't paint a large acrylic painting. I have no time for that. So what I ended up doing, you know, once I kind of sat with that for a while, like, well, what can I do, right? No, I can't do that. You're right. But what can I do? I just bought hundreds of these tiny little four by Uh four canvases. (sighs) I would paint those. Yeah. I just like, like, well, you know what? I can't do a large scale painting, but I can certainly do a four inch by four inch painting. There's at least one more bonus episode to come this season, and there is a third season in my future. But if you aren't yet convinced to create more space for play in your leadership, I wanted to give the last word to Kathy Clote's guest. You have on your website this sentence that I love, and I want you to share a little bit more of it, because you say, playful, powerful, bold people change the world. Yeah. Can you share some examples of playful, powerful, bold people that have inspired you or that you have seen change the world? Yeah. First of all, I'll say that in my experience, the people who exude joy 
there's something infectious. It's contagious in such a positive way. And it makes you want to be around them. It makes you feel like you can do that too. Yeah. You can do, you can, you can, it's aspirational. It's like, I can unlock my joy and joy is something for everybody. We're all born, born. It's our birthright, right? Nobody yeah. should be able to talk us out of owning play and joy. Cause that's, that's our human heart. It's our birthright. And I think, you know, um, gosh, I, like uh, in the play space, like Kevin Carroll, if you know who he is, that he just inspires me so much. Um, I'd say, you know, women, um, I remember growing up and watching as a little kid in reruns with my dad watching, um, Carol Burnett. And I was mm. like, she exudes joy. Yeah. Never met her. Wish I could meet her. Um, she exudes joy and she's a woman who owns fully who she is. No apologies. Yeah. And, you know, I think seeing joyful leaders, um, even if you even look at the most humble leaders on the planet, they all can laugh at themselves. Um, you know, who, who has a really wonderful sense of humor, Malala, mm. everything she's been through. Yeah. She's not going to sacrifice joy because she knows how precious life is. Yeah. And you look at the most humble leaders and they understand that joy is, is the only way forward in life. And no one's going to do it for you. You've got to claim it. And so I'm inspired by anyone who chooses themselves and says, I'm going to own that. Man, that, that to me, that energy is like, yes. 